My name is Dan. I'm one of the leaders here at Grace Fellowship, and I'm excited to open up Job 35 with you, which is on page 282 of your church Bibles. To everyone else, Job 35. (coughs) Jim stood up and stormed off from the dinner table. I'm all prayed out, he said as his wife began to cry. This is a quote from a movie called Cinderella Man. It's one of my favorite movies. Jim Braddock was a boxer during the lowest point in the Great Depression. When work dried up, he still faithfully got up every day to scavenge for a job down at the docks. Most days he came home empty-handed, but he went back again the next day. Even when his family had no money for food, he refused to let his children resort to stealing. He did the right thing time and time again, no matter how hard life got, but life did not get any better. It got worse. At one point, their their electricity was actually shut off in the middle of winter, and the children were cold and sick and hungry, And so one night at the dinner table, Jim's wife asked him to pray, but Jim replied, I'm all prayed out. When I first saw this movie, I was pretty moved by this scene. And now that I'm a husband and father, I'm very moved by this scene. It begs the question, when life seems hopeless, is there really an advantage in doing the right thing? Jim Braddock didn't think so. He came to the conclusion that he was powerless, and so he lost hope. Wouldn't you have? This, I think, bears a striking resemblance to the man named Job. As we continue to read his story, we know he's a hard-working, honest man who lost everything. And though his friends said he deserved it, Job defended himself... In fact, as we now peer below the surface, that actually seems to be Job's main agenda. Job's main agenda is Job. He has now demanded that God should own up for giving him such undeserved hardship. Because of this outburst, a man named Elihu finally speaks up, and he is now in the middle of rebuking Job. Today in chapter 35, Job is going to hear what any proud person would hate to hear. Elihu will tell him that he is very small. He is like a bug. And Elihu will use Job's own words to prove two points. First, that Job can't manipulate God. You see that in point one. And second, God actually owes him no compassion. That's point two. And underneath all of that, we're going to learn that we're in the same boat as Job. But underneath even all of that, we will find an unbelievable hope. So let's start with point one. You can't manipulate God. I will read the first eight verses of chapter 35. So I'll give you a moment to find that. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? 
I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself, and your righteousness a son of man. Let me pray for us. Dear God, I think we're surrounded so much by a culture that wants us to have our best life now. We're surrounded by a culture that gives us intrinsic value. And so to to go before the Lord is to acknowledge our smallness. And that's hard, Lord, but would you help us to do that? Amen. So Lahu doesn't begin with vague accusations like his Job's friends did. He begins by quoting Job right in verse 2. See that? Verse 2, he says, Do you say it is my right, Job, that you ask how am I better off than if I had sinned? Let me explain this. In saying, how am I better off than if I had sinned, Job seems to have some legitimate frustration. He seems to be asking a genuine question, and that in and of itself is not sinful. But the problem is, there's actually a heart of pride underneath, and we're going to go find it. Feel free, if you'd like, to flip back to chapter 9, verse 22. This is the start, I believe, of the, the thread of pride. Chapter 9, verses 20, verse 22. When Job says this familiar phrase, It is all one, therefore, I say, God destroys both the blameless and the wicked. But as you keep reading that chapter, you see this spark in verse 30. Job says, If I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you, God, will plunge me into the pit. Do you sense that frustration of... Of course you probably do. We read that frustration to death for weeks and weeks. Job is effectively saying that his words provide no advantage, or his works provide no advantage, but that anger, you see it, continue to build. And, and I say that because as the chapters pass, you see his confidence, self-confidence continue to build all the way up until chapter 27 when he says this, As God lives, who has taken away my right. Do you see what happened? All those chapters look like self-defense, but when you hear that phrase, my right, we're not in self-defense anymore. We're actually into self-promotion. Because at the end in claiming that he had a right to prove himself before God, that that he had some sort of intrinsic right, but yet God took it away by never showing up, Job is saying, maybe not directly, but he is saying that he has been wronged, that God owes him. And it's frustrating, isn't it? I mean, it seems like his good, good works count for nothing, doesn't it? He's not getting any better. His friends are, they're quiet, but they're still, you know, jerks. <laughs> now, are Job's works really meaningless to God? Like, are they? I mean, no. We've, we've read in chapter 1 that, that God actually boasts to Satan about how loyal Job is. See my servant? Do you remember God said that? Job, there's none like him on earth. There was value. 
God saw it. But here's the problem. Job has overinflated this value by claiming that he has rights. This is pride. And while Job's three friends likely didn't catch it because they were so busy saying wrong things, Elihu doesn't miss it. So Elihu continues in verse 4, Now I will answer you, and I will answer your friends with you. In other words, you all have it wrong. So what now do you think young Elihu might say to a proud man who believes his good works earn him some, for lack of a better term, cosmic bonus points? You might think, or how you might respond, is that Elihu would challenge Job and say, you don't deserve rights. You've sinned. You're not righteous enough. You don't deserve any of that stuff. No, that would actually be the same argument that Job's friends took. And Elihu actually goes the other way. Let's see what he does. In verse 5, Elihu says, Look up at the heavens and the clouds, as in, go outside yourself. Stop looking in the mirror and look up, Job. Consider who God is, perhaps, and weigh it against your little righteous deeds. Now, what's, what's amazing is that the man saying this, Elihu, is a young man. He might be young enough to be the age of Job's children. Have you ever said something like that to an old person? It's scary. <laughs> And he essentially calls Job a little bug in light of God. And here's a real bombshell. What he's actually saying, he's calling everyone bugs. Look at him level the playing field in verses 6 and 7. If you sin, Job, what does that accomplish against God? Okay, so what does that mean? Because, I don't know about you, but we see all throughout Scripture that you know, sin grieves God. Like, it's bad. But, but that's not actually what Elihu's getting at. Elihu is asking, if you sin, does that take God off of His throne? What does that accomplish against God? How does that damage God? How does that defeat God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is it doesn't. So Elihu rightly continues in the same verse, if you then multiply transgressions, what does that accomplish? Implicitly, here's what Elihu is saying. Sin does not make God stop being God no matter how great it is. A million times nothing is still nothing. And so the reverse is true. Verse 7. If you are righteous, Job, what does that accomplish for God? What does that mean? Well, does it please God? Do good works please God? Well, we could say sure. I mean, remember, God boasted about Job. But does that give Job any rights? Does that give him sort of a leg up on God? No. Elihu agrees in the same verse, what does God receive from your hand, Job? In other words, multiply those same good deeds. What do they add to a perfect God? They add nothing. And so again, a million times nothing is still nothing. It works both ways. 
So here's a summary of what Elihu is saying to Job. He's saying, Job, you flatter yourself. Your good behavior is good, but it does not get you some cosmic advantage. In fact, no one has an advantage. God is high and mighty, and so no one can manipulate him with their little tiny actions. And I'll tell you what, to Old Testament society, this was a pretty radical thing to say, and I think it was probably an even harder thing to hear. Because sacrifices to various gods for things like better crops and things like fertility and things like success in battle, that stuff happened every day. In other words, to the world, the idea of God being manipulated by our performance was pretty normal. We don't do that today, do we? Sure we do. That's why you're here. <laughs> Here's an example, because it even gets into Christianity. That's, that's how we roll. Here's an example. Think about the last time you've said this to yourself. If I could only just blank, then... God would blank. Just think about the last time you said that. And I get it. You probably didn't say it that way. So I've come up with a few examples. If I could just pray harder, then my family would become Christians. Or my friends would become Christians. If only I could be more patient, perhaps. Then God would send someone to marry me. Or then God would give me children. Or the reverse is true. If only America would admit their moral failure, then God would prosper us again. You seen that one on Facebook lately? (laughs) Or how about let's get personal. If only I could clean myself up, then God would love me. See, we, we take things like salvation and marriage and the miracle of babies being made from and, and national redemption and we think our little deeds are going to cause them to happen. And here's the thing. Those things that we want, those are good things. Those are wrong. You should pray for your family and you should pray to be more patient. And you should pray for children. And you should fight to unify people in the nation. But God saves whom he pleases. And God ultimately causes the paths of young men and young women to come together. And God causes the womb to open and he causes it to close. And God causes nations to rise and fall. And we can't manipulate that. And so the heart of Elihu's correct assessment applies to Job and it applies to you. God is God, and so everyone else is a bug on principle. Job is a bug, and you're a bug too. And guess what? He's a more righteous bug, but he's still a bug. And so that begs a certain question, doesn't it? The question that it begs is, don't we at least deserve some compassion? Point two. You do not deserve God's compassion. (laughs) Let's read verses 9 through 16, and then we'll see some tremendous hope underneath. Verses 9 through 16, Elihu continues, Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. 
But none says, Where is God my Maker, who gives us songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth, and makes us wiser than the birds of heaven? There they cry out, but he does not answer, because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him, and you are waiting for him. And now, because his anger does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. So consider that uh, first point again that Elihu has made. You can't manipulate God. Just remember that. Elihu now begins to draw out kind of a larger point that not only are people bugs, they actually really don't even deserve to be bugs. Like being a bug is actually a compliment. Okay, first, Elihu takes a step back in verses 9 through 13, and he uses the example of human suffering, which, by the way, Job is going through, to show how sinful Job is. And it's hard and it's good. So just stick with me. Verse 9, Elihu says this, People have oppressions, and they cry out. And that is very true, isn't it? I mean, when life is hard, who prays to God? Everybody does. I was in New York on September 11th, and the church that I was a part of got very, very busy after that for a while. And then people stopped coming. When life is hard, you pray to God. Why? God is mighty, right? He could save us. But... Though people cry out when life gets hard, here's the question. What are they really crying for? What are they really after? I'm going to answer that. Hang with me. Verses uh, 10 and 11 are going to take a little work to explain. First, I'm going to explain how good God is because He actually offers compassion. And then I'll explain why we actually don't deserve that compassion. Verses 10 and 11. We see that God gives us songs in the night and he gives us wisdom, and he gives us teaching. In other words, God offers us songs and teaching and wisdom in order to help us in the midst of hardship. Now, is that some sort of consolation prize? You know, as opposed to actually getting out of the problem? Not at all. Elihu is saying that God offers us something in a way greater than just a quick way out of trouble. He actually gives us hope in the midst of trouble. In other words, the situation doesn't have to get better. You can actually trust God fully in the midst of it. Now, let me illustrate the difference between those two things with a a quick story. When Becky and I first got married, we were in a very, very hard spot financially. I remember actually waking up on our honeymoon with panic attacks. Like, I didn't even wait to get home. And I remember actually crying at my parents' house, and I was asking them, what have I gotten her into? Why have I done this to her? Now, say my parents would have heard that, and they would have just decided to write me a check that would have made all those problems go away. Would that be nice? Yeah. And you know what? If I wouldn't have taken it, you would have said, mail it to me. Now, here's the thing. Would that have solved my real problem? No, because what if I have problems again later and my parents are unable to write another check? 
back come the fears, back come the panic attacks in the middle of the night because guess what? My heart has not changed. Now, my parents never wrote such a check. They wrote other checks, but they didn't write that one. And so I learned day by day to call on God and trust Him and pray and keep moving forward and make little payment after little payment, though my problems were still there. In other words, even beyond, or I should say, even beyond that, He gave me friends and He gave me good counsel. It wasn't just this, like, me and God thing. So, in other words, God gave me songs in the night. He gave me teaching and wisdom. And guess what? That did a lot more for me than a bailout would have ever accomplished, right? This is what Elihu is talking about. But guess what? We want the check, don't we? That's what we usually want. I mean, how many hours of your life, if you could add them up, how many hours of your life have you spent hating the fact that you're suffering? Just wishing you were out of it or trying to get out of it instead of dealing with the real issue. See, when we're oppressed, here's what Elihu's saying. We so often pray to God for a quick bailout because God's given us songs in the night, but we don't think they're good enough. We don't want God because ultimately what's going on is we think we know what's best for us. Quick bailout, quick escape route. But you know what God wants? He wants our heart to fully trust Him and Him alone, even in the night, especially in the night. And don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it's wrong to pray for a miracle. All I'm asking is, why are you praying for that miracle? Because it's often all about us, isn't it? And when life is hard and we're only concerned with our own welfare, we get into this mindset where we just think, I'll work harder and then I'll finally get that bailout and God will do what I want. And guess what? We're going to end up just like Jim Braddock, all prayed out. And you know what's the hardest thing of all is? It might sound crazy to hear that, but it's actually good for God to do that. Look what Elihu says in verses 12 and 13. God does not answer those cries, cries of oppressed people, because they're often full of pride. So really, why is, why is it good for God to do that? I mean, I could just say, because God is perfect, so everything he does is perfect, so there you go. I could just say that, but I'll try to be more specific. Here's my attempt. Because when we act in pride, we're saying that we really love ourselves and we don't love God. And so because of that, we can pray and we think we're praying to God, but we're actually praying to something else for something else. We don't really want anything to do with God. Here's what I mean. It's possible to think you're crying out to God without actually crying out to God. And to be honest, why would he answer you when you're really not talking to him? I think that's Job's problem. In Job's suffering, Elihu has proven that Job wants to prove himself righteous. In other words, Job is not leaning on God at all. He's leaning on himself. But guess what? He doesn't have the strength to stand, and it shows. 
and neither do we. So Elihu, in what many commentators call a pretty harsh move, actually then sets Job lower than the bugs I just talked about. Verse 14. How much less, Job, does God ignore your cries when you say you do not see him? In other words, Job has called God distant. And guess what that means? That is like a small wicked bug calling God an even smaller, more wicked bug. That's what Job is doing. Do you see the pride in that? And guess what? That's what comes out of us every time we declare that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. Every time you and I sin, we call God the bug. We call him a deadbeat dad. We call him an absentee landlord. So is it harsh for Elihu to say this to Job, who is in the middle of such pain? Probably. He's, he's young. Elihu's young. He could probably grow intact. I know some young guys that could probably calm down a little bit. But guess what? God does not rebuke him for saying this. Here's the reality. God has given Job songs and teaching and wisdom, but Job only used them when the sun was shining on his life. Now it is night, and life is hard, and Job refuses to sing. And here, if it's even possible, is the most infuriating part of all. Look at verses 15 and 16 and get the big picture back into focus. Elihu says, Job, God doesn't punish in anger or take much note of transgression because, you know, what is man to God? In other words, he takes it back to the whole bug thing. In other words, Job is ill-deserving of compassion, yet he is so ignificant. He is so insignificant that his great sin, his cosmic treason, still does not overwhelm God. And so in verse 16, all of Job's prideful words are called empty talk. Your biggest sin is just... Job is prideful, but he is so small that he can't escape God. He's a bug. His legs aren't long enough to run away. Do you know what this means for the original audience? Now it's actually a lot worse than, hey, you can't do a rain dance and save your crops. It's a lot worse than that. Here's what it is now. There's a chasm between you and the God of the universe, and you cannot cross it. He needs to come to you, but you can't make him. That's our problem. We can't manipulate God one way or another. We can't make him dance for us, and we can't take his throne. And we don't even deserve the songs in the night that he gives us. There is a great divide between us, but it pleased God to cross over and save us. Point three, compassionate Jesus crushed in your place. Let's do a little comparison. Job demanded rights that he never had. And we do the same. But when you consider the life of Jesus, he actually abandoned rights that were his by nature in order to save us. Why? Because he had compassion. 
His compassion was greater than our sin while we were yet sinners. 2 Corinthians 8 says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that, by you, so that, so that you by his poverty might actually become rich. In other words, he knew that you were a bug, and he knew that you were deserved to be crushed, and he knew that the chasm was too great, but he was crushed for you. You deserve to be crushed, but he was crushed for you. You could not reach across, so he did. I don't know about you, but when I give people compassion and they spurn it, I usually don't want to give them more compassion. I want to give them less. But because we had no hope, he became our hope. So let's apply that reality to our first point. Jesus didn't need to try and manipulate God because he actually being one with God was able to satisfy God's standard of perfection and apply that then to our second point. Jesus' sacrifice, since it was perfect, actually then gives us confidence to draw near before God for compassion. In other words, we still don't deserve it, but because of Jesus' perfect nature, we know that we have it. That is what separates Christianity from every other religion out there. Because every other one says, you've got to earn heaven. It's on you. And really, do you think that you can bring yourself up to the level of a holy God? Don't flatter yourself. Because if you do, you're saying one of two things. You're saying that your sin either isn't that bad, or you're saying, God, that is not that holy. Either way, you need a rescuer all the more. But the good news is, he has already come. His name is Jesus. So what does it mean to live in light of all of this? I'm going to give us two applications. Because of who Jesus is, your first application is that you can waive your rights in freedom in order to serve other people. I'm going to read from Philippians 2 for that. Philippians 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That stuff that I just read, that is only possible if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you can't do those things. You can make it look like you do it, but you're not actually doing it. Because in every other religion, and that includes humanism, Good deeds are only done by people so that they can get into whatever afterlife they subscribe to. They're not actually doing it out of love. It's all about them. 
But in Christianity, being unified and being humble and serving others is a celebration because you're already in. You don't have to buy your ticket. So you can give up all those things. John Piper once said, I don't need to travel. I'm getting a new earth. I love that. You can still travel, please. But, you know, Piper, you know. So in Christianity, all these things are a celebration because you're already in. And so the application then is to serve others and to live sacrificially and to do it because Jesus has freed you to do it. But one of the main ways you can apply this is is consider why are you doing those things the day in, the day out, the week in, the week out. You know, you're running mics, you're doing sound, you're setting up snack carts, you're leading growth group, and, you know, it's just hard some weeks, and you're thinking, why am I doing this? You can ask the question, am I really doing this for God's glory? Or is this really about me? Is this so people think I'm an awesome servant? Or is this so people think I have an awesome, clean house? And you're going to fail to do those things. You know, like I'm not saying like if you do, I'm saying when. So your application then is to remind yourself that that chasm has been crossed. Jesus is your hope. And then keep praying and working. You don't have to buy your ticket. You don't have to, like you're not, you're not losing it. You still have the ticket. You're in. Here's your second application. You have songs in the night. Don't forget that. Consider the resources that you have. Number one, you have actual songs to sing in the night. You do. All the, the psalms, you know, the poetry. The, I, I know churches that have made all of them into actual songs. But even beyond that, like seriously, what are you listening to? Like what kind of music do you listen to day in and day out? Does it point you to Jesus or does it point you to something less than that? And I get it. You can listen to instrumental stuff and that's cool. But like be careful. Like what are you listening to? Is that actually fixing you on the reality of the resurrection or is that just... Does that stuff just become this doom loop? I remember lyrics from like when I was a teenager and they're just drilled in my head and they're horrible and I can't get them out because that's what pop music does. It gets in and it doesn't leave. So be careful. What are you listening to? Number two, you have the songs of Scripture. For example, read Philippians 2 like I just did if you're struggling with selfishness. And as a clarifying point... This may not actually feel like a song in the night because often scripture is complicated and you got to get out the concordance and, you know, you get up and your brain's tired and sometimes it really doesn't seem that comforting. So consider this quote by a man named Frederick Meyer. I love this quote. When the Bible itself becomes irksome or bothersome, inquire whether you have not been spoiling your appetite with other things and believe that the word is the wire along which the voice of God will certainly come to you if the heart is hushed and the attention fixed. In other words, you can trust scripture and not your feelings. I tell my daughter all the time, script, uh, you know, your feelings, they make a horrible bus driver. They take you to crazy places. So you can trust Scripture, not your feelings. And you know what? The cool thing is, is at, at some point, your feelings will catch up. Like, there will be a time, even if right now, opening up, like, Old Testament stuff seems crazy. Just keep doing it. Your feelings will catch up. 
And number three, you have the song of community. And I'll just keep that simple. Growth groups, other people around you, you know, all the, I, I love watching all the moms, mom groups do their thing now that, now that I'm a dad. Um, and, um, I, I, you know, this seems kind of cheeky, but really, it's just a bunch of little bugs, and they're just together looking at the light. That's really what it is. So, to wrap up, you're a bug, you're still a bug, and you're a prideful bug, and it might drive you crazy that God is monumentally bigger than you are, but that's your only hope. And to be honest, it's actually a wonderful reality. Your feelings just haven't caught up yet. And it's all right then to be small because God is so big. And so when you're in the middle of hard times, you can pray not simply for a bailout, but a heart that trusts in Jesus. That's your best life now. Because no matter how dark it gets, you can focus your little bug eyes on the light that never goes out. Let me pray for us. Dear God, it's so hard to be small because I often just want to be so big. And I can think of so many times in my day and my week that I just want to puff myself up. I want to make myself more than who I am. And it gets so bad, Lord, that I even want to um, think that all the good stuff I do actually moves you to then bless me. But to be honest, Lord, you bless me when I'm, you, you've blessed me while I was yet a sinner by sending Jesus to die. And you bless us, though we fight and we, we spur and we spur one another and we just continue to claw our way to become more like you. Lord, you continue to bless us. Every time we take a breath, that's you blessing us. Lord, would you help us to remember that? Would you help us to remember that as we extend grace to other people? Amen.